all this week as I prepared to preach from Matthew chapter 21, and Jesus going into the temple, I wondered what it would be like if Jesus physically walked in our doors this morning. I wonder, would we recognize him? You know, from the pictures that you had on the wall in church as a kid, with the long flowing hair and the really nice beard. You know, what if Jesus were a little bit bald? You know, I've always wondered that. I kind of feel a camaraderie with him if he were. What if, what if he couldn't grow a full beard right? You know, it's just kind of patchy. What if he, what if, would, he, would we recognize him? I wonder Jesus walked in this morning. I wonder what Sunday school class he would attend. If he got here at 9 o'clock or 9.15 or whatever time it is that your Sunday school class normally starts, I wonder, I wonder what class would he attend? I would, I would venture to say that he, he would be looking for the Honorable Eddie Clyde Hale, who teaches down the hall. And, and of course, in that class also, as I've mentioned to you before, is a man with a road named after him. Nelson Key is in that class as well. And so Jesus would have to go. He'd have to go there, right? But I wonder what class he would attend. What if he showed up in yours? I wonder, I wonder would he be welcomed as he walks in the door? Would we, would we say, hey, we're so glad that you're here. Would we just give a passing handshake and go find your seat, buddy? I wonder. I, w- I wonder where he'd sit. Some of you are saying, well, he's a Baptist, right? Jesus, he'd be in the back. That's exactly where he'd sit. I don't know. Jesus would sit, you know, I wonder who he'd sit with. I wonder, would you move to the center if you knew Jesus didn't have a seat? I wonder, you know, would you, would you move? I wonder what he'd think of the sermon or would he say, dude, sit down, just sit down, stop. Let me do this. You know, I'd probably let him speak by the way. I probably would if I, if I knew it was him. A little secret for you. He's here every week. He doesn't physically walk in the doors, but he's here. And when I look at Matthew 21, I don't take particular comfort this morning in the fact that Jesus is here. Not because that's not part of the truth, but when I see Matthew 21, and I see what Jesus did when he entered the temple... I recognize that he is here and he is always watching and always evaluating. And he has a particular standard. He has a particular way. And if he entered physically, I wonder, would he have a seat here and just want to take it all in and say, wow, you guys, I'm telling you. Or would he throw us all out and tell us to start over again? I wonder. Look at Matthew 21. You got your Bible? I want you to look at Matthew 21 with me. There's a Bible there in your pew or in the chair in front of you if you didn't bring one or if you don't have the, the same translation I'm using. I would love for you to, to have a copy of God's Word. If you need one, please take that Bible with you. But somehow get this morning, go ahead and get to Matthew chapter 21. And what we've got it, taking place here is Jesus uh, is, is going into uh, the, the, the temple complex. He's entered Jerusalem. Everybody has celebrated that he is the, the king. And here he comes. He, he rides in on the donkey. And this is the week that he's going to be crucified. Everybody is celebrating Jesus. And if you were him in that moment, if I were him in that moment, I'm not sure that I would have done what he went and did. He goes into the temple after everyone has welcomed and celebrated him, and you would think that he would say, all right, you know, this is, man, I've been building up to this. This is exactly what I need and what should be given to me, but he doesn't do that. 
We're going to see here an instance as Jesus physically enters the temple that reveals to us that he takes very seriously the worship activities, the gathered activities of his people, he takes very seriously. Look in verse 12, Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus went into the temple complex and drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves, or in some translations says a den of robbers. He goes in and he completely clears the place out. Why did he do that? What was the major problem? What's going on? I believe it points to three different categories, if you will, that he was targeting, that he was upset with. And I think as we look, and of course, and follow me for just a second, we do not meet anymore in the temple complex. It is not where God's presence resides. And we know that based upon what the truth of the New Testament, that we, we see the full fulfillment of, of God's presence, it's in his people. But I believe that Jesus, as this would be read later by churches, by Christians gathered in churches, Jesus was showing us something, not only that he had a problem with Jewish religion, but he would show us something that, you know what, don't let your churches become like this either. Don't let your gathered activities, don't let your, your corporate together stuff become like what Jesus got so upset about. Okay, so that's, that's, that's where we're looking. There's three different categories here, I think, of churches, of gathered worship activities that Jesus will condemn. If you got your hand out there, you're going to see we got a lot of stuff. We're going to get through it this morning, I promise. Not all to the end. You get something up front. Last two weeks, I've waited till the very end, and I've seen you kind of kind of squirm. So, I, okay, all right, we'll go from the very beginning this week for those of you that struggle with that sort of thing, all right? So the first one is very, very obvious. The first kind of church, the first kind of worship activity, the first kind of gathered thing for God's people that Jesus condemns is when they operate purely and only like a business. He gets on those who are selling. They're buying and selling items for the Passover sacrifice. That's what's going on. The time frame is Passover. And if you know anything about Jewish history in any way, about the Old Testament, you know that they had to bring certain animals to sacrifice. And it was based on your income as to what you had to give and so on and so forth. And so these folks would get there. And, and what would happen in the temple complex was this giant exchange of money for animals. Now, this was in one sense necessary. There were some necessary things to this business idea that the church or the, the temple was, was doing. A lot of these people had traveled a very long distance to get there, and they couldn't exactly carry with them all the necessary animals for the sacrifice. So, so, so a little bit of this was necessary. They simply had to purchase something in order to make the proper sacrifice. They, they either had to carry the money or carry the animal, and, and, and it was easier in some sense for them to carry money. And then once they got there, they didn't have the same exact currency. And so it's like going to a different country a little bit. They had to exchange that currency. And so that kind of gives you an idea of what's going on. So these folks are selling animals for the sacrifice and they're exchanging money so that they have the right currency to buy the animals. Now, all of that in one sense might've been necessary, but the problem that Jesus points out, what made him so upset was it took on a very ungodly and even abusive form. Because what was happening is those who would sell something would look at the folks who didn't have anything to buy. And you know what they did? It's supply and demand, right? It's capitalism at its very best. They jacked the price up. I have what you need. You don't have what you need. But you have money. I like money. And so I will charge you money for what you need that I have. 
And in this case, they would charge these ridiculous prices. You ever been to a ball game? I'm talking not, not, not just Murray State, okay? But I'm talking go to St. Louis, go, go somewhere for a ball game, and they charge, they charge you $5 for a bottle of water. It's water in a bottle. Well, of course, what amazes me the most is the folks that will, will, will buy the alcohol at $8 a pop. 16, 12 ounces maybe? Man, they charge you. It's crazy, isn't it? I, 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 we, we, by the way, I, we're, we're, we're now going to charge Wednesday night for chili. <laughs> now that I think of it. It's going to be cold and rainy outside. You want some chili? Lay it down. You know? But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, they, that's what they do. It's kind of that's kinda what's going on. Why do they do that? Because they can. You can't go anywhere else. We went to Disney World this summer. Once you get in there, unless you brought your food, which I did, my kids hated me. I brought food every single day. They hated me every day. I, it, it, they hated me. But I had food because I'm thinking, I'm not paying that. But then, you know, I had to anyway because they hated me. And so, that, you know, but they got you, don't they? They got you right where they want you. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. Where are you going to go? It's the same thing here at the temple. They, they knew that they had these people. Where are they going to go? They can't get animals for sacrifice. And they had to make a sacrifice. So they had them. They, they could do anything they wanted. And what's interesting in this case is they did it all in the name of God. Jesus says, you've turned God's house into a den of thieves. Do you know what the den was? It was the hideout. It was the place they felt comfortable. It was the place they knew they couldn't be bothered. Here they are in plain sight, out in the open, in the fellowship hall, taking care of business, feeling as if they are covered because this is in the name of God. Isn't that interesting? This was a very efficient religious machine. Financially sound, no doubt. Administered well. Money in the bank. The temple was full. The bills were paid. I guarantee you their leaders were chosen based upon their financial acumen, what they brought to the table, their achievements, their credentials. And Jesus, as we see, is having no part of it. None. He tells them they've made the temple the equivalent of that den of robbers. And he says, it's time for you to get out. His main point is that the temple was not to be a place of commerce, but of unhindered worship. Sometimes it's easy for us to drift into just thinking along business terms. But let me encourage us this morning, as we'll get to this in just a minute. The church is not purely a business. I say that and it almost sounds rhetorical, doesn't it? Well, yeah. But let us be very, very careful, very careful, that what we do here has at its core the mission of Jesus Christ, not even the mission of Elm Grove Church, certainly not the mission of me or any of the leaders, but the mission of Jesus Christ, not merely to be financially sound, not merely to fill the building, not merely to make sure that the bills are paid and so on and so forth, but to truly fulfill his mission. Jesus had a problem with these folks. Clearly, of course, there are some business practices that are needed. 
We've got folks in place to make sure that we don't do anything really stupid. (laughs) We do some things to make sure that we are covered and so on, and we're trying our best to do that. And yet, I I think even in that, we we want to make sure that all of that is channeled toward where it needs to. Very careful not to allow our, our thinking to be dominated by business-type decisions. Jesus has a problem. Secondly, I think the kind of church that Jesus condemns here as he talks about what's going on in the temple, not only is it when it's purely a business, but when it's a drive through A drive through We don't get much here about those who are, who are buying But if you look at the first verse there in in chapter 21, verse 12, it says he drove out all those buying and selling. He didn't just drive out the sellers and tell the buyer, look, just victims in this. I'm sorry this has happened to you. He drove out everybody. Everybody. He's rejecting the whole system, or at least the the heart behind the system. There's a problem that he's got with what's going on. Uh, the, The buyers here have traveled a long way. And they're just looking for an easy way to do things. Even if that's not totally their mentality, they've allowed the sellers to continue this unbiblical and ungodly process. Now, as I've seen, I've been in ministry for about 15 years, been a pastor here for just over 10. As I have seen, I think in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, it is this that gets churches even sometimes more so than the business mentality. It is the drive through mentality. The shorter the sermon, the better, right? Somebody just whispered, amen. (laughs) We want fast service. Get us in and out of there. Beat the church of Christ to lunch. We want to get there quickly. In the drive-thru, there's really no commitment from those who drive through, right? They just want a meal. In the drive-thru church, there's no particular commitment from those who serve. They're just sort of doing a job. Well, yeah, okay, I'll fill a spot. Sometimes in a drive through church, people serve their time and they do things for years and then they sort of retire and say, well, it's time for somebody else to do this. In a drive through church, there's relatively little cost associated with it. Focus in a drive through church is on pleasing the customer and making folks happy rather than pleasing the Lord. There's often a passive personal discipleship. I think for a lot of churches, this is the easier way to drift. We just sort of come, put in our time, and we leave, and we'll join us again the next week. Jesus has a problem with those who are buying things in that fashion. And then thirdly, he's got a problem with those country club type places. The temple was constructed to assure that everybody, Jews and Gentiles, had a way and a means and a place where they could worship God. Those who were not Jewish, the Gentiles, had a special area. It was called the court of the Gentiles. And guess where all this buying and trading is primarily taking place? Right there in the middle of the court of the Gentiles. So you've got these people that are coming to church, essentially, coming to worship, coming to make their sacrifices, and instead what they've got is a Walmart supercenter right there in the middle of it. That's what they've got. And they've got all the noise and all the animals going around and all the money changing hands, and they're trying to worship. Do you know who didn't have a problem with that? The Jewish people who were buying and selling didn't care about anybody else. 
Who cares about those people? They're not us. They're not one of us. The country club mentality. There's a guy named Tom Rainer. Tom right now is the president of Lifeway, which is the, the, the used to be the old Sunday school board for those of you who have been Baptist a long time. They produce a lot of Sunday school material and different books and resources. And, of course, have stores. There's one in Paducah. But Dr. Rayner is the president of Lifeway, and he, and he wrote about some things about how do you know if you've got an inward country club focus. And I say these only because I, I, I want us to always be mindful of this. He said you've got a lot of stuff, you've got a lot of worship wars, which means that you fight over style of worship and music and so on and so forth. Fight over it. He said most meetings deal with inconsequential things while the Great Commission is rarely discussed. There's too much focus, he says, on preserving facilities. The buildings and the furnishings have iconic status. He said there's greater concern over change than the gospel. And he says this, there's less passion about seeing people saved than about what change might be required in order to see that happen. There is an unspoken line between those who are really the church and those who are not. New people are welcome, provided that they're not sinners, provided they know how to dress, provided they don't cause any problems, provided they don't have any problems, provided they know how to act, and provided they stay out of the way. Sunday school classes, he says, are largely closed in country club churches. Getting new members involved is the job of the pastor. And he says, if that church were gone tomorrow, how many people would miss it? There's very little diversity there in that temple complex. The Gentiles not being allowed to worship. Very little evangelistic fervor, enthusiasm. No one cared that they were being pushed out. So you've got here the churches or the, the kind of places that Jesus condemns. Those that devolve into being simply a business or a drive-through type restaurant or a country club. And Jesus went off. There are a few times when I wish I could teleport myself back in time and see things from the Bible. I would have loved to have been there at the burning bush when Moses hears the voice of God. I would have loved to have been there on the mountain when he receives the Ten Commandments. I would have loved to have been there in the field with the shepherds when Jesus' birth is announced. I would have loved to have been there at the cross, as painful as that would have been. I'd love to have been there at the empty tomb. And I'd love to have been there right then when Jesus loses his mind on everybody. Oh, man, I'd have, just, I'd have paid money to see that. Watch him. He's got a whip. He's cracking it. He's got, that's what I should have brought this morning. I was telling somebody earlier. I should have brought a whip. But then I would have destroyed something up here. And that service is over. And I, you know, I looked dumb. But imagine for just a second that peaceful Jesus that you love so much. That we go, oh, he's just a nice guy and a nice dude. Dude goes off. He, he went off in the temple. He's turning tables over, yelling and screaming, chasing people around. That's Jesus. Think about it. It's not some other dude he sent in there. It's Jesus himself. He's that angry about what's going on. I think he's primarily angry because the temple complex, the whole temple system, and ultimately he wanted to warn the church it had missed its purpose. The purpose was not to govern a business or to be a quick drive-through or to be a nice country club for the people who were already on the inside. 
The kind of church, the kind of place that Jesus approves is far different from all three of those because that kind of place is a disciple-making factory. A disciple-making factory. I've got a good friend that I worked with in Atlanta right before I came to serve here, and he has since planted a church that he pastors, and they call themselves the Factory Church. And their goal, literally, is to be what they see in Scripture, which is a disciple-making factory. They just want to continue to glorify God by leading people to know Him and to walk with Him. They see in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them. So you reach them, you teach them. That's what they want to do. And they focus, they say, on the other six days of the week. And I really believe... That each and every local church should be one local disciple-making factory. Yes, there are other things involved, but that has to be the focus. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. He wants it to be about reaching and teaching people who are far from him. Giving them the opportunity to know them. Anyway, how do we do that? What I'm going to do is quickly walk through what I think Jesus shows here some ways that we can turn if we need to or keep going where we need to or press on if we need to. To be a disciple-making factory, I think everything that we do has to have some characteristics, and we'll give you six of them. The first is that everything we do must be Bible-based. Jesus here in verse 13 is quoting Scripture from over in Jeremiah. He doesn't make up his, his statements. He doesn't give his own opinion. He says, here's what God's Word says. This is what the Lord says. It's just like the song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to know, thus saith the Lord." There's something about that, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God has to say. Everything that Jesus did was based on the Word of God. Everything that He said, based on the Word of God. And if we are to be approved by him, everything that we do must have a Bible basis. Every meeting, every purpose, every idea, every initiative, every class, every decision must be Bible-based, not Brad-based. Not, not opinion-based, not, well, I prefer this based, Bible-based. If we can't find a biblical reason to do it, let's stop doing it. Or let's get it on board with what the Bible has to say. Secondly, everything we do must be Christ-centered. He says as he quotes scripture, my house. It's interesting he doesn't just say God's house. He says my house. Now Jesus is declaring to everybody right there who he is, that he is God, that this is his house, the temple complex, that is his place. He says my house. Everything is to be about him. And of course, their activities at this point were anything but about the Lord. And we say it all the time here that what we want to make sure that we understand is that in life, in death, and for eternity, for us, it is Jesus plus nothing. We want everything to be Christ-centered. We're not merely a religious business. We're not a religious drive through We're not a religious country club. We are a body of Christ. If not for his life... For his death and his resurrection, we we have no purpose. I have no message. We have no direction. We have no reason to get together if not for him. And so every decision that we make, 
Every event that we have, every ministry that we keep doing must have one purpose, and that is to see people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let me, let me tell you, one of the temptations for pastors, and maybe, maybe you understand this if you're in leadership here, is to make things church-centered instead of Christ-centered. Because we want people to want to come to our church. I want the building to be full. Boy, I really do. I, I like it when there are lots of people here. It is real easy for us to hide the message of Jesus behind the name of Elm Grove Baptist Church. But we are to be Christ-centered, not Elm Grove-centered. Thirdly, we are to be prayer-dependent. He says, quoting scripture, my house, Christ-centered, will be called a house of prayer. Many times, I don't know about you, but I think I can speak for all of us, we are prayer-averse. We sometimes avoid it. Maybe we feel like we already know what to do. Or prayer seems so inefficient, so passive. Well, you know, we got to do something. You can't just sit around and pray about things. But prayer over what we're doing is absolutely essential. It's vital. Are we praying in a dependent fashion, in a desperate fashion, or just because it was the, des the designated time for us to pray in the class, in the meeting, in the service? Prayer dependent. Fourthly, we are to be mission driven. Matthew here leaves out, which it's included in one of the other Gospels, he leaves out the finishing part of this quote. Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. We have one mission. Jesus gave it to us in Matthew 28, as I said earlier, to make disciples of what? All nations. Everybody. Everywhere. We don't determine the mission, by the way. We simply get on board with it. It's easy to have mission drift, if you will. Easy to kind of drift from that and just take up space. We start sometimes being driven by our finances or the desires I mentioned to have the building full or to please people or doing things that have little or nothing to do with making disciples. But a church that is on a mission will base its decisions not on personal do you realize that, that personal preference that, that can, can, make or, can make or break a church? Do you, do you realize, and I, and I say this because I have personal preferences as well, the style of music and the size of the church, big or small, is a personal preference. That's it. Personal preference. Now, there are certain things that say, well, that song is not biblical. That song is biblical. There are certain things about a larger church, about a smaller church, that you may say, okay, those things are biblical, those things are not biblical, but really it's just personal preference. In a mission-driven church, personal preference goes out the window. You know what we prefer? Jesus high and lifted up, that he might draw everyone to himself. That's what we prefer. So it's mission-driven. And then next, it's hope-giving. I haven't read these verses yet, but look at verse 14. Right after this, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. What would they have been thinking? This dude's nuts. 
he's crazy. He's lost his mind. He, you know what they did? They, they either saw him as they are lame, or they heard him if they were blind. And whatever infirmities they had, they were aware of what Jesus did, and they recognized this is a guy who's against all that that other stuff represents. He's a guy we can go to. And it says the blind and the lame, they come to him. Why? Because he offered hope. Because he offered new life. And he heals them. He gave them healing. He gave them hope. The truth is, that's the folks that God has called us to minister to. We sit at Elm Grove in East Callaway County. And on the whole, East Callaway County is not a very affluent part of Callaway County. You may be aware of that. By and large, we are not in the rich part of the county. And so guess who God has called us to reach, who he has situated us around? People who, by and large, do not have lots of money and are desperate. It's who God has called us to reach. In one sense, it's the blind and the lame who can't do anything for us, but God has said, go do something for them. Sometimes these folks who are far from the Lord, not because of their income, not because of their lack of income, not because of any infirmity they have, but simply the condition of their heart, which is what the blind and the lame truly represent here. Sometimes those people make us uncomfortable. Sometimes their lives make us angry. Sometimes we aren't so much like Jesus with them. We are to be a hope-giving church to those who desperately need Jesus. And next, we are to be worship-focused. It says in verse 15, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children in the temple complex cheering Hosanna to the son of David, stop there for just a second. These children are worshiping because they had seen others worship. I wonder, what would our kids do if they worshiped like us? Think about it. Sometimes you, you get a little bit anxious, don't you, when kids start to make noise in here? When, when they move around a little bit. If we were to go over in the fellowship hall right now and see them in their element, worshiping the Lord, just from hearts that have been created by Him, you might be tempted to say, well, one day when you grow up, you'll understand what true worship is about. You know what we mean by that? We're really boring. That's what we mean. We're really boring. What if our kids worshiped like us? These kids are saying, Hosanna to the Son of the Day. They are praising God. Do they know everything and understand everything? No. But they, out of the mouths of babes, if you will, are leading. And it's interesting that that worship focus came from kids. Let me, let me if you're a young person, 25 and under, I call you a young person because I'm not anymore when it comes to that. Please lead us. Some of us have grown stale. Some of us have kind of grown comfortable. Some of us have gotten a little boring, if we're honest. Some of us have lost the excitement, as David mentioned, the joy of our salvation. Show us what that looks like. Walk with God. Enjoy Him. Give everything to Him. Show us what a life of discipleship looks like. 
And if you're not a young person anymore, you're not 25 and under. Wait a minute, I'm 26. I'm not old. Hold on a second. But if you're not that young person anymore, let me encourage you. Pay attention to the kids in this story. Because we're going to have one of two responses to their worship. We're either going to join in and say, praise God for what he's doing in your life. Let's worship together. Or we're going to be like the Pharisees. It says here, they were indignant. And said to him, do you hear what these kids are saying? Worship focused. A church that's on mission will worship its Savior. What do we do now? All that stuff. What if Jesus really did show up at your next committee meeting? At your next Sunday school class? What if he really did show up this Wednesday night at Trunk or Treat? What if he said, you know what? Next Sunday morning, just so you know, I'll be there early. I'll be there. What would we do differently? How would your life be different if you truly believed that you were accountable to God himself? If you truly believed your life was not your own, that you did not create yourself and that someone else did and that you were accountable to whomever that may be, how would your life be different? The Bible tells us very clearly we are all accountable to God himself, all accountable to Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, all accountable for the decision we make about him. How would your life be different if Jesus, the Savior, were standing right in front of you, showing you the scars on his hands and feet, telling you, I love you and I died for you and you are a sinner in need of my salvation. Receive my forgiveness. How would your life be different? What would you do this morning if that were the case? I am not Jesus Christ, but on behalf of him, I tell you that same truth. And one day, I can tell you from the scripture, you will stand before him. And looking at his scars, you will either be welcomed or rejected based upon the decision that you make today, here on this earth. Will I follow Jesus or will I reject him? And as a church, if Jesus were to stand up here... And say, let me tell you, here's my evaluation. What would he say? How is it that we can respond to this? Let let, let me ask you these things, please. And I mean this sincerely. Please help me. Please remind me. Please challenge me. Help me structure everything that we do around being a disciple-making factory. Please, please don't just shrug at this. Please, don't assume that it will just happen or that someone else will do it. Please, remind me, challenge me, and help me. Let's work together to be the kind of church when Jesus walked in, he could say, you know what, they're Bible-based, they're Christ-centered, they are prayer-dependent, they are mission-driven, they are hope-giving, and they are worship-focused, and I am so glad to be among these people. Let's pray together.